This is the Omar Pinto Coaching Podcast, Episode 5 with Cole Chance, A Path to Healing and Wholeness. Life coaching is not about teaching. It's about seeking, finding, and identifying the intuitive guidance that resides within each of us. At some point in our lives, we are all faced with two of the most important questions. Who am I? And why am I here? It is the journey of self-actualization and self-discovery. This is where true happiness, fulfillment, and joy comes from. Finding your purpose and realizing your fullest potential. Join me, world-renowned life coach Omar Pinto, each week as I interview coaches, thought leaders, and experts, as well as perform live, unscripted coaching sessions with my guests. Welcome to the Omar Pinto coaching podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Omar Pinto coaching podcast. And I'd like to remind all of my listeners that to find out more information about me, the podcast, the guest show notes, and more information about one-on-one coaching with me, then go to omarpinto.com where you can schedule a free consultation with me today. And if you enjoy listening to the podcast, then please Go to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and review. It is the best way to show your support for the podcast. And finally, for those of you that might be struggling with alcoholism or addiction, go to my recovery website, The Share Podcast, www.thesharepodcast.com, where you will find tons of free resources, information about our private recovery membership community, the SRC and all the previous episodes of the SHARE podcast. And now, without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode. Welcome, everyone, to the Omar Pinto Coaching Podcast. And today, it is my honor to host my wonderful friend, Cole Chance, who, as we were starting this this interview, really kind of went back a little bit, got a little nostalgic right? Because I want, today I want to talk about Cole's hero's journey. I have been privileged to watch her emerge and evolve and transform um, over the last five, almost six years. And it's been truly an honor. It's been truly beautiful because she has stayed true to who she is, even as she evolves and continues becoming. So we're going to be doing two things. Today, we're going to be talking about becoming and the other thing we're going to be discussing is Cole's hero's journey. You ready, Cole? Yes, let's do it. All right. So first of all, Cole, tell us a little bit about where you're at today, who you are, what's your message, what you're currently working on in this moment, and where you're living, which is very important. Very important. Where I'm living, I'm living in Australia, in Manly, Australia. So it's morning here. So I just got back from a little beach. I get to wake up and walk to the beach in just a few moments, just a few minutes. And today I'm, uh, well, I teach internationally when travel is open. And I teach retreats all around the world and yoga retreats and work on an addiction program, a recovery program. And that's new, right? That is new. It is new. And it's something that 
something that I wanted to do for so long. And I even remember, you know, first getting sober, but it was like such a pipe dream of like, maybe just maybe I'm going to have something to share eventually. Like something good can come of this, like maybe, but I doubted it. Um, so that really tumbleweeded slowly and surely. And when you real, and when you, you know, have an experience like mine, like yours, like uh, so many of us, it's like, we almost speak a secret language. You know, we speak this, um, speak this inner language, but I just began to compile things that worked for me, things that didn't work for me and, um, kind of put it together through different lenses. So I teach yoga. I'm fascinated by Buddhism and I'm a super science nerd as well. So I've blended all of these different perspectives and looked at addiction and recovery through all of these different lenses. And that's kind of what the program is about. And it's called Emerge. So it's using all these different lenses to look at something when for a long time, we've only looked at it one way. So it's kind of a curious exploration, inner exploration that uh, I take people on. We do it as a group. Right. So would you consider your program Emerge um, a unique approach to recovery from the perspective of cold chance? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Okay. So I want to pause there for a moment and remind our listeners that Cole took information that's readily available to all of us. Mm -hmm. She extracted the information that most applied and appealed to her, Mm -hmm. put it in a format where she could make it presentable for people that were looking for similar information. So this is her way of finding her people is through taking already existing information and just compiling it in a, in a unique way that fits her style and then ultimately uh, reaches her audience. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I think so. It really is like a curation mm-hmm. of um, exactly. a curation of things that are resonant to me and my recovery in the hopes that it's resonant with others. And it's not a formula for everyone, but it's just in hopes that from what I provide, that somebody can do the same thing, take what works for them and leave the rest. Beautiful, beautiful. So I have done the same where I have taken my, let's just say over a decade of 12-step recovery along with the last, I would say, four years of personal development, um, along with my spiritual practice. So there's been, there's been the spiritual practice. There's been the 12-step recovery. There's been certifications. I've also received coaching and joined different mastermind groups. So I curated all this information as I was embarking on my journey. Information was coming in, was coming in, coming in, coming in. And there were certain aspects that I was like, this really works for me. And so my coaching style and how I coach people is from a place of curation of information where I took what I needed and left the rest. So this is where, this is why I think that moving forward um, with this podcast is so important because I want people to, to feel like they can do the same, like, oh my God, it's too late and they're so far ahead and they're already doing it. Cole, did you ever once feel that way? That people were too far ahead? Mm-hmm. That I was starting too late? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, yes, yes. Imposter syndrome? Yeah. Of absolutely. course. 
Remember when you, you know, came to me? Remember when you came to me and like, hey, oh, can can I like, you know, bend your <laughs> ear? I'm kind of like struggling right now. Were you struggling at the moment? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you needed help, mm-hmm. and you reached out to me. Now the thing is, you know, Cole is my friend, and so I mean, she can reach out to me whenever she wants, and you know, it's not just anyone can reach out to me or to Cole. Um, we've kind of reached a point in our lives where it's just, we are very much involved day to day in our workflow. Mm-hmm. However, for those of you listening, as you start on your hero's journey, you're going to start meeting some really incredible people in your life. And you want to keep those people very close to you. And I had Cole interview me at the close of the share podcast. And now I'm interviewing her. Um, because I feel like it's important to, to know that you are going to eat bowls of shit for <laughs> years. Okay. The hero's journey is almost like the entrepreneur's journey, which is first, it starts with a giant bowl of shit. And as soon as you're done with that bowl of shit, you know what you get? Another bowl of shit. That's right. <laughs> and when you're done with that bowl of shit, you get delivered to one, another one, okay? And just when you're about done, where you're like, I can't eat another bowl of shit, it happens. You find a little more room. <laughs> go for another one. No, you, you, right as you're about to walk away, but you have to eat enough bowls of shit before you get to that point where you're about to walk away. And all of a sudden, the universe will go, you wanted it bad enough. Here you go. Yeah. So now I'm going to, I'm going to try and turn it because I'm already monopolizing this interview. I want to turn this over to Cole. So Cole, first, I want you to start us with your rock bottom moment because I love, 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 love that story. So just indulge us with that rock bottom moment, that, that moment where the, take us back to the trailer park. I want, you know, just as best you can retell that story because it's so impactful. Yeah. And you know, I don't even know if that was my bottom. I had, I had a lot of them there, but this was a very big, this was, that was a very big uh, moment for me. So still to this day, I can look back with nostalgia about my addiction at some times and remember the vision that on those moments of nostalgia, the vision that I have of myself in my addiction is with like my head thrown back laughing, like, like this exuberance, like, oh, um, I felt so big. And I felt like big, light, bigger than my body, um, exuberant, ecstatic. And I felt it from the very beginning. Uh, the first time I, first time I ever drank, I was 13. And like all of the puzzle pieces came together. It's like, I didn't realize that I was playing like a Rubik cube. And then all of a sudden it's like, I solved it. It's like everything came together. And I just felt like I found the golden ticket. And I remember that very first night saying, I'm going to do this forever. Like my whole trajectory of my life was set at that point, like, which is so wild to think about now, but that's just what it felt like. And, um, and I remember, I recall there being a lot of glamour and I really wonder how much of that was in my head. When I look back of that was just the feeling of it. Cause I felt ecstatic on with alcohol. And then, of course, you know, later on that I meet cocaine and ecstasy and, you know, things like this. But that was the feeling that I was going for is this kind of larger than life party girl. And that is that that feeling that I loved. And I had this idea of myself 
as that, that fixed, you know, that we all get these fixed identities and that's kind of what my fixed identity was, was this, you know, glamorous, carefree party girl. And I was very attached to that. I didn't realize how attached I was to that identity. So all of these other things kept happening, which were evidence to the contrary, evidence to the contrary of me being this carefree party girl, things such as DUIs, as losing jobs, as um, hospitals, later on detoxes, rehabs, all of these other things kept coming in wanting to be like, hey, you have a problem. And I would justify them away. I would validate them away. I would be like, no, no, no. Like I had too much or it was, you know, an accident. I shouldn't have mixed this and this or whatever, you know, we can excuse everything away because my fixed identity was that I was having a good time, that I was having fun and I was fine. That was a big mantra of mine. I'm fine. I'm fine. 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 I'm fine. fine. It's all, I've got this. Jesus. (laughs) Oh. And so all of this, yeah, all of this evidence coming in and I was just batting it away, batting away. And it continued to get harder and harder to justify because I was, I mean, it was quite a tornado, but I could still do it. And so eventually this glamour, I see this changing. I see this changing and start to see like chinks in the China and um, cracks in the walls of this illusion that I had this illusion of grandeur that I had really built about myself. Beautiful imagery. Like I can just, that's <laughs> such a, like, I can, it's almost like a scene in the movie where you can start seeing the person with the, you know, yeah. trapped inside their own prison of their making, you know, and the cracks are starting to come through and the illusion is starting to fade. So Absolutely. good. Absolutely. And, you know, I love, I read this word the other day, I can't remember where, or this pairing of the words called a useful delusion. Mm. (laughs) And I was like, oh my gosh. Explain. A useful delusion. Well, what I was trying to do, my addict was trying to survive. So all of me lying to myself was useful to my addict. Like a useful delusion, we don't, we deny because it helps us. We lie to ourselves and to other people because it helps us in a way. Like we're always winning the game that we're playing. Mm. And at that time, the game that I was playing was my addiction. That was the game that I was winning. Not in the sense of winning, like I was beating it, but. Oh, we know. I get it. (laughs) Yeah, no. It's the useful delusion. delusion. (laughs) Geez, just a mess. And um, so eventually. I think I had had, I had, I was living in Austin, Texas and I had had about three months sober. I'd went to a three month um, rehab. This was my sixth rehab that I'd been to. And the thing about Austin is that I had never lived there before. So they sent me somewhere new so that when I, you know, came out that I, you know, wouldn't know anyone, which is great in lots of ways. But then when I got out, when I relapsed, the only people I knew were people in recovery. So of course I called the people who I knew had already relapsed. Genius. They weren't going to do me, you know? So then, you know, we, the band was back together, like, you know, the worst of the worst. And, um, you know, we just signed off on each other's addictions. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And validated each other. So they're helping. We're feeding each other's delusion um, that we're having a good time. It's just suffering. We were suffering. It was not glamorous anymore, but man, it was very hard to play that game. And so at one point I was in, um, 
this one part of town that is very known not to go to this part of town. And of course I end up in this part of town at a crack house um, with some friends from rehab. And it was just something else. It was something else. It was a big compound, probably a couple acres or something with a bunch of different trailers on it. And there was like, there was like a trailer that was full of electric equipment. Like there had to have been 50 computers in this trailer. And this guy was just up all the time fixing the computers, like hacking things, hacking things. Just like that's one trailer. It's like every trailer was like its own own adventure, but like own, not the kind of adventure that you want to be on. And it was just, there was kids running around. There was different, you know, prostitution going on very openly with the kids around and everybody was waiting for this, like, the patriarch to come back with, with this, with our fix. Everybody was like, you know, do you know that scene from the little mermaid where they're in Ursula's cave? Mm-hmm. Somebody's going to, so I'm going to go with it. Cause go with it, go with it, go with it, go with it. There's a scene in Ursula's cave where there's all of those little, the lost souls that are like at the bottom of the cave. And they're like, arr, arr. <laughs> like they're like waiting to like feed. Like that's what it was. Hungry like. ghosts. Hungry ghosts. And I just started to see it. I started to see it. And I remember laying back on this bed and the patriarch had came home. I could hear everybody buzzing around him. You know, they're making the deals and everyone all of a sudden has all this energy. And I kind of lay back and I look up and there's this mirror on the ceiling. And there's, so I look down at me and a girl laying next to me and she had to be like 14 or 15. Mm. Like she was young mm. and she was sleeping and it just hit me. Well, I see myself and then it's like, I'm seeing me almost. Cause this is kind of the age that I started thir- you know, 13, 14. And I was like, Holy fuck. Holy fuck. At the same time, I can hear everybody doing their, you know, thing, thing and like the, <clears throat> the the feed me, give me, give me, give me, and this just the whole thing was like, oh my god. But we get to a point to where even when the delusion starts to crack, we have to, we can't look. So then I just put things on top of it, so I didn't have to see that because that's too painful to see. Yes. Yes. So it didn't stop there. It it did. It did. Um, I don't think long after that, a few months after that, maybe, but it's just so interesting that it's, you know, it's not only the substance that, that the substance is just its own demon, but then everything that we do and all the shame that we can pile. And whenever we lose our fixed identity, they think that they say that like, they talk about losing a fixed identity. That's like losing your religion. That's like realizing your dad's not your dad or like something that you think is solid is not is not that's one of the most painful psychological things that people can go through so when we as addicts lose our fixed identity of who we think we are we've got to give ourselves some credit because that is like it is not just it's terrifying it is not physical detox everything changes i was fucking mortified i felt like i was a shell of a person i was just going to walk around hollow like i didn't it was I did not know what was in there. I didn't think anything was in there. So this is all reeling and there's, you know, other, other stories, but this is, this is beautiful. This is exact. This is a rock bottom. Okay. Okay. There, there, there could be a million. It doesn't matter. One is enough for the listener. Right. So what, 
motivated you? When did you finally say, not one more day, not one more hour, not one more minute, I am going to change my life. I don't care what it takes. It was probably just actually quite close to this. It was probably a few months or a month later or something that I was um, injecting heroin and cocaine with some of the, with the same crowd of, with this, not that at that place, but with the same few people from, from my rehab. And I, I didn't know what I was doing. So I would just like put my arm out. I didn't care anymore. Like it was just whatever, just make it go away. You surrendered. And yeah. And I just, I remember we were standing and then all of a sudden my knees buckled and I like swayed and dropped down to the ground. And I was trying to say, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. And my voice was coming out and I wasn't able to speak. And I just remember seeing eyes like this and then I was out. And then I woke up, it wind up being, I think like eight hours later, no one's at the house. You know, that story, everybody had left and just like the worst physical sensations. It felt like my brain had been electrocuted and I went through lots of painful things, but felt like my brain had literally been electrocuted and I couldn't turn my head left to right. It, it, it was horrible. It, it was absolutely horrible. And I had to hitch hitchhike across town, Austin, Texas. And I remember I had to cross main intersections and I'd have to turn my whole body like this to see if there was a car coming, like to play Frogger in the middle of August in Austin, Texas. Like it was fucking brutal. And when, when I came, when I came kind of out of this, when I, I got to my house and I kind of like, I laid there, I went to the liquor store that was right across the street. Conveniently, I bought a bunch of booze because I knew that I was just going to have to lay there and drink myself better. That's my thinking. Mm-hmm. And nothing worked. I had lots of, lots of booze. I wouldn't got lots of stuff. Cause I plan on leaving my house for a few days and nothing was working. And I remember hearing in AA in the rooms one day, it's not going to work anymore. Mm. And I remember thinking, Bullshit. Because <laughs> what I thought they were thinking, and I'm glad that I didn't realize this then, is that at the time I thought that they meant like the actual substance wasn't going to work anymore. So I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. Like it's actually not going to work anymore. It's not going to work anymore. And really, what I think they meant is like what you're doing isn't going to work anymore, like in terms of the bigger picture. I was, like, I was like, oh my God, the prophecy is true. <laughs> Prophecy is true. It's not going to work anymore. But like, God, my body would just went through the fucking ringer. And it wasn't like I was just drinking off a hangover or a withdrawal. Like it was like, I don't know. I was putting substance in my body to do the only thing that I knew how to do to make myself feel better. And it wasn't working. And I recall somebody telling me in a rehab, I hadn't even thought about this since she probably told me years ago. I even remember the girl's face or anything. It was some tech at a treatment center and her telling me, you know, one day you're going to realize that you can be high or you can be happy and that the two don't go together anymore. And I just, that, that came into my head and I was like, Oh my God, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. What I wanted, this glamorous, what I thought I was, I was only getting farther from that. And like, it's like the, the spectrum was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was on opposite ends of it. And the only thing I was doing was driving myself farther apart from what it is that I wanted. And I'm like, I'm not trying to die. I did this because I was 
trying to have fun. Like I thought I was partying. Yeah. Of course I was dealing with some anxiety, you know, shoving some things away, but like I was doing this to be exuberant and I was just shriveling and that was it. I called the sober living house that I had been actually kicked out of um, a couple months prior. They had like found, I was hiding bottles all over the house. They shouldn't have taken me back. There's no reason they should have taken me back because it was a danger to who they had in there. Mm -hmm. They had one, there's one bed in all of Austin, Texas, in all of Austin, Texas, and all of the sober homes, there's one bed. There's actually only one sober living place that takes people that aren't coming out of treatment center. So there's a high, one high risk sober living place within that sober living place. They have one bed that they give to somebody who doesn't have any money. And you got it. I got it. Nobody should have given it to me either. And, you know, but I had never asked for help. And when I called and I said, I'm done. No one ever heard that attitude from me before because I wasn't trying to quit. And she told me to come on a Wednesday and I'm like, I got to make it three days. And I showed up Tuesday night with my bags and I said, I will sleep on your couch. And when I swear, when I walked in, it still gives me goosebumps. Like when I walked in the door, it was just like my whole body exhaled. It was like the part of me that had been wanting to quit that didn't even know that I did was like, thank God. <laughs> like, thank you. Like finally helping us. The hero's journey. Hmm. This is the hero's journey. That's, that's, that's what it sounds like. That part of you that knows exactly what you need and where you're supposed to be going, and who you are, desperately trying to reconnect with you. Mm. And finally, finally you're there. Finally you're reunited with you. And there was no looking back from there. So this is the first part of many parts of the hero's journey. But I, like Cole, am so grateful for that moment that brings us to tears every time we talk about it. Mm. Because what it is is, is exuberance. It is joy. It is gratitude. It is appreciation. There's no way to appreciate what we have more than we have when we have lost everything, including our identity, including our self-worth and self-respect and our desire to live. When everything just gets, when we tear everything out of our lives and somehow we find our way out. And it's really that person inside of us that we always knew we could be. That very larger than my body, exuberant, right? This golden ticket, right? The glamour of it all. Yeah. What, we're, what we're chasing is really who we are, our essence. Mm-hmm. Our essence is light. Mm-hmm. We are all light. And so now... You start and you, you know, do the work. You get into, you're in the rehab, you're in the sober living. You're, you know, there's that first year of like becoming, right? And there is this, what the fuck was I thinking? This is too hard. It's too painful. And you work through that because obviously Cole has seven years. Okay, so now seven years clean. So there's all this time that has passed. The first year is so hard and so difficult, kicking it, withdrawals, anger, frustration, resentment. Uh. And then I want to fast forward for 
essence of time, mm-hmm. you embrace. You finally get to a place kind of like right when you walked in the door where you're like, hmm, hmm. I think, mm-hmm. I think you know what? Okay, I think I think I got this. I think I think I got this. Um, I'm humble, so I'm not going to just like go hang out in trailer parks with people banging dope. All right, I'm going to stay on this path. But now I am going to add to my 12-step journey or mm-hmm. whatever recovery journey. Were you on the 12-step journey in the beginning? I was. I was a little bit, yeah. Good. Okay, so now- I had a lot of that throughout, yeah. Okay, good. So now I want to get to this part where you're like, okay, now I want to build something. I want to create something. What was the first thing- after you kind of settled in that you started to work on your creation piece? Well, for me, a really big piece of this was yoga. So about five years. Oh my God. Stop, stop the presses, stop the presses. Okay. So there, I just, I just got transported to your story about being on the yoga mat. So I need you to tell, was that in your first year? So what happened is, so the first time, the first time that I ever did yoga, it's funny because I get asked this a lot, like, how long have you been practicing for? I'm like, well, the first time I ever did yoga was at a treatment center in California about five years before I got sober. Nice. Oh, story gets better. uh, Was my first uh, yoga class. You know, I think I said I had been to like six treatments. I think only two of them had yoga, which is just, we need to get yoga everywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, but so the first time that I went to a yoga class, yeah, was in treatment center. And I just remember being like, whoa, what, what is this? Being so disconnected from my body that, so that even just focusing on my breath, I'd never thought about thinking about my breath. Or um, one thing that really stood out to me was the teacher. For one, the teacher, she said that she was a heroin addict in recovery. And I remember thinking you're an angel, like her voice. I just remember like her demeanor, everything about her was like, I was like starstruck by this, by this woman and not believing her um, about that. But she said that namaste, which I had heard before at this time, but she said that this means that my highest self, the highest version of me sees the highest version of you. Mm -hmm. And at that time, really my story was my, one of my stories, internal stories that I um, limiting beliefs was that I am bad. Mm that I am bad. I had always gotten in trouble and I really just didn't think I was doing things. I thought like to my core that I was bad. So like, this is why I do this. So to hear her say that my higher self, I was kind of like, Hmm, I didn't know I had one of those. So I started thinking like, huh, you know, this higher power was really hard for me to kind of grasp, but I was like, what would my higher self do? Like if I was being the best version of me, then what would I do? I knew that there was something here for me in this yoga. I remember reading like the eight limbs of yoga and some of the things that they want you to do. And I remember seeing that, oh, damn it, you know, you can't drink or it's really not that strict. But I do remember kind of looking into it to that to that uh, degree. But I kind of put it on a shelf and was like, I'm going to come back to this. Like there's something here, but I'm going to come back to it. But throughout the next five years, if I was doing okay, then I would go to a yoga class. So I would kind of dip in and out. So I'd started to kind of watch the scene. I would like overhear people chatting after class, going on tea dates and like all these things that I'd never done. Um, Like they're going for tea. I've never asked anyone for tea. Like that was quite novel. And so 
whenever a big piece of this was that I might be out for a really long time. So yoga became a barometer because I could only get to my yoga mat when things were okay. So sometimes I could go, you know, I was going semi-regularly and then sometimes I wouldn't get there for six months. And when I would get there, I would unroll my mat and I would get in child's pose and I would be like, oh my God, like I made it back. It was like touching home base. It was in my anchor point. Knowing that if I had made it there, that I had that little moment of safety and a little bit of clarity where the world kind of was quiet for a moment. Not an easy place to be as an addict. Mm. Not at all. But a place, a barometer. So whenever I got into the sober living, you know, another little synchronistic was that I found a yoga studio that had 30-day free trial. I don't have any money. So I sign up for the 30-day free trial. I go every day, every day. I go to my mat every day. And the first time that I went back, um, after I get into the sober living house, I go back and I unroll my mat and there's a big class like at wanderlust yoga, downtown Austin, 50, 60 people in there. I unroll my mat. I get into child's pose and I just lose it. And I'm just like ugly crying on my mat in the back of the room because it just, again, was this reminder, the same as walking through the threshold of this little, um, this little sober living place is getting on my mat in child's pose. It was again, another reminder of like, you are safe, but you got to stay, got to stay. And I just kept coming back. And that was a big part of my journey. I think that yeah, we're, we're mentalizing all the time, which I think is very, very good, but getting into the body, into the soma um, is so important, regardless of it's yoga or it's running or whatever, whatever it is that we're doing is getting into the body because we have so many stored memories there. So the yoga practice was big and I just kept going and I wound up getting my teacher training there later that year. So that really started my, my teaching was born out of that. I remember from there, I went back to some of the rehabs that I went to (laughs) and then I was the teacher and people would look at me and they'd be like, I don't believe you. Like, I don't believe that you, you know, and I'm like, Oh honey, trust me. (laughs) And just so funny. Just like what a, what a reversal of that. And to be able to walk into a rehab and then walk right back out. I'm like, I've been fantasizing about that for years. (laughs) The first time I did that, when I walked in to teach and then I left, I just started crying after I walked out the door because I was just like, oh, my God, I just went in and left. Like, I was like, holy shit. Like, just a big reminder of like, what a big difference. Wild. When did you when did you take the teacher training with Nikki Meyer, the Y12 SR certification? Probably. Well, it would have been just a little bit before I had met you the first time. That would have been in my second year, probably. Okay. Which was huge for me. She's amazing. So for you, that anchor point, the, the yoga mat, has been your set point from that moment on. Whenever you get lost, you find your way back to your yoga mat. Yeah. So it is through your yoga mat that you guide, teach, inspire, motivate others. Yeah. And so guess what happens, Cole? You were right. Mm. You were always right. You were always right. You are exuberant. You are Mm -hmm. larger than life. (laughs) You are glamorous. Mm. And how tall are you? Six foot. Okay. You are like everything about you is large. Your essence, your presence, your aura. 
your stature, and you use mm -hmm. yoga to get longer, leaner. It's who you always knew who you were. Mm -hmm. And we blame the drugs and the alcohol. Mm -hmm. And I refuse to do that. I refuse to do that. I refuse because we know who we are and we're too afraid to allow ourselves to be seen. Mm -hmm. There's a big bad world out there. People are going to judge us. Who do we think we are? And drugs and alcohol, man. I'm free. I can be whoever I want to be. And then there's that little voice that says there's a problem, and it's really saying, um, yeah, you were on the right track. Now you're going in the wrong direction. Turn around. Mm -hmm. Turn around. Mm -hmm. And what it provided for you was yoga. Yoga was always your, the journey back to self is on that mat. It reminds you who you are. So now with that amazing realization that you were right you've always been that person and now you can be that person as a force for good going into every single one of those rehabs doing yoga and people going no i can't believe it no no way and you're like oh yeah oh yeah probably it's why you kept your dreadlocks for so long mm -hmm. so so that people could still find you yeah yeah mm-hmm Mm-hmm. You don't need them anymore. You can be unapologetically Cold Chance. Who has the best name ever? Cold Chance. <laughs> right? So on this hero's journey, and now you have a recovery, an online recovery community program, right? So of all the things that have happened to you in this journey, as people are listening to this interview right now, what are some of the biggest learnings and takeaways and aha moments that you've had along the way? I mean, one of them I, I still think is the one that I said on, you know, the first podcast that we did five years ago is that, you know, leave room for not knowing, leave room for the unimaginable because so many times have I thought, would I have sold myself short if I didn't allow myself to be open to what, what was possible? Like when I think something is fixed, like this is the way that it is and not allow for it to change. Oh man, I would have missed out so much. And just that, that how much we, we don't know what we don't know. We just don't. So allowing that things to flow and to shift. And I know that we like to control things. We want things to stay put, but they don't, they don't. And you're going to really reduce your suffering if you can kind of, you know, let the fingers open a little bit and the magic, that's how the magic happens as well. So always working with that. I'm always, I'm repeatedly learning that lesson again. And every time I'm like, mm, I knew this, <laughs> but I think that that that's such a big one. There was so many moments in your story where you knew where you, you would surrender, you surrendered, you would, you surrendered to the unknown you, you learn how to surrender to the unknown in the drug world. We all do. Mm -hmm. I have no idea if what I'm putting in my arms is going to kill me or get me high or fuck me up. I have no idea. I trust implicitly in that moment. I have complete faith that whatever's going to happen next is divinely guided, meant to be, whatever the case may be. I have no fear in that moment. I surrender to it. 
And when we come into this world free from the fear removal substances, because really that's all it is, fear removal substances, pushing through that fear, pushing through that discomfort, pushing through that pain, on the other side of that is success and achievement and exuberance and confidence and excitement and the thrill of what comes next. Would you agree? Absolutely. Well, well put. I like that. I like that too. It just came to me. So Cole, as we close up this interview, I want you to imagine that there's people out there that are listening to this right now and you want to get a message out to them. What's that message you want to get out to them? Mm -hmm. Recovery is hard. It absolutely is hard. And it often feels like the more challenging route in some ways it is because it asks you to go against the stream. It actually is asking you to rebel against the things that you always do, which is your addiction, but your addiction is harder and you can do hard things. So doing the hard thing is not the problem because if you look around you, you're doing the hard thing. So it's turning that into something that's going to provide sustainability And I think that often in recovery, we look at this giant mountain that we have to climb and we're like, I can't, I can't, but that time is going to go by anyway, and it's going to be hard either way. And to take that time and that energy, that all consuming energy that you put on your addiction and go up the mountain. And it's so absolutely worth it. And to remember that you are not alone And I think that that's the biggest thing is we think that nobody understands. It's just me. It's just me. There's so many of us that do. And it's so vital that you reach out because it's not something that we do alone. And that really dissipates that isolation and um, yeah, community and camaraderie and doing this together is like such medicine. It really eases the burden and that hardness. So for those of you listening that are not in recovery or not battling with addiction and said, and listened to this closed off because it's like, oh, well, I'm not an addict and I'm not in recovery. I want you to replace the word recovery with healing. And I want you to replace the word addiction with life. And really that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Healing is so difficult. It's so hard. And we have to do so much work and we're all dealing with our life and living and becoming because part of this interview is about becoming who we are, who we were always meant to be, but we just forgot. See, Cole Mm -hmm. forgot that she was everything that she thought she was. And today she remembers, she knows Mm -hmm. who she is. So Cole, if our listeners want to learn more about you, what's the best way for them to find you? Um, I am Cole Chance Yoga on all the things. So on a website, Instagram, Facebook, you can find me that way. And then I have all my things will be inside of that uh, teacher trainings, uh, recovery community, and um, all different kinds of explorations and retreats. So lots of options. So you have a, do you have a, a website that is called Cole Chance Yoga? Yep. Yeah. Very smart. I've just, the, see, I just rebranded same thing, Omar Pinto Coaching. Everything is Omar Pinto Coaching, except my website. My website ah. is just omarpinto.com. Okay. And I saved okay. that URL 11 years ago, Cole. 
11 years ago before I had any idea what I was going to do with it. We never know. Follow your instincts. Follow your internal guidance system. It's there for a reason. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. Cole, my beautiful, beautiful friend, I love you so much. Love you. Thank you. you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for that beautiful message. (laughs) What was that? I was just saying, absolutely. Just, yeah, huge gratitude for you. Yeah. Mm, Same here. Gratitude. All right, folks, we've now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Omar Pinto Coaching Podcast. And if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please be sure to go to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and review. For more information about me, the podcast, how to join the SRC membership community, how to follow me on social media, or to find out more information about one-on-one coaching with me, go to www.omarpinto.com and schedule a free consultation with me today.